This morning we will be looking at the last section of Ephesians chapter 4. We are now well past the halfway point of the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Just two more chapters to go after today. Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is always, and especially a reminder to us in its commands, completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would attend your word with power, that by your Holy Spirit, your word would take deep root in our lives, that we would be changed by it, that we would see your will, and we would long to do it. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning, as we finish off chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, We now, I think, begin to understand that Paul was a pastor. Because you see, he was a theologian. We know that from looking at the first three chapters of Ephesians. And we know that he was someone who cared for his people and made application of theology. But now as we get to verse 25, Paul begins to come to a place Well, for the most part, only pastors go. And that is, Paul has now come to meddling. You see, it's one thing to apply the Word of God generally to us. It's another thing to come in close, to make very practical application that we know applies to us and our life. We're always comfortable when generalities are before us because we can look around and assume the pastor's talking to most of the other people around. 
But when it comes in close, then we realize that we stand before a holy God and that the will of God is that each of us be more and more like Jesus. And so this morning I would like us to see three things from our text at the end of chapter 4. First, Paul will give the exhortation to live in Christ. The exhortation to live in Christ. And then secondly, he will give us a series of examples of living in Christ. What it means to live in Christ. And then finally, he will tell us the end of living in Christ. That is, the goal or the end of living in Christ. An exhortation, examples, and the end. Let's begin then by looking at the exhortation that Paul gives to us. Before we delve into the details, the very first thing that we must remember and understand is the context of Paul's exhortation. This is, of course, one of the great benefits to going consecutively, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through a book of the Bible. Because oftentimes, we are tempted to take a text like is before us today and to take it in small pieces and parts, almost like putting our finger in the air and letting it light down on the text and assuming that we find a meaning in the four or five words that are before us. (coughs) What we have to understand, though, is when Paul gives this exhortation, he is assuming, because he has laid the groundwork, that the Christian life is not individualistic. You see, we often assume that the Christian life is just me and God. Sure, there might be other people around us who are living the just me and God, but we forget about those who are around us. Somehow we think God is not involved in using others around us to make us more like Jesus. But the truth is, is that we are not alone now. You can look around and see that, can't you? And we will not ever be alone. In eternity, we will be a part of the great throng that worships the Lamb. But the problem is, is that sin has broken our ability to have relationships with others. Sin damages who we are. It makes us less than human, as it were. Less than who we were created to be. One of the other things that Paul has reminded us is that the church is the Christian's home. Paul has been emphasizing the unity of the church. Perhaps you have been taken aback a bit by how often and how vociferously Paul encourages the unity of the church. But you see, it is important for us to live our lives in light of that truth, that the church is the body of Christ and it is meant to be united. There is a third context that we must never forget. And that is that the Christian life begins with God changing us. We saw this last week. It begins with who we are in Christ. You may remember that technical term, the indicative. Paul tells us who we are in Christ. What Jesus has done. And that makes us who we are. 
Paul says that we have learned Christ. And what that means is we have learned of His saving power, how He transforms us. And because we are no longer who we were, we then put off the old man and put on the new. Now Paul is going to be specific about what it means to put off and to put on. But we have to understand this order that who we are comes first, and then what we do comes second. Because we defeat the entire purpose of God's work if we seek to reverse it. If we seek to think that if we just clean up our speech, fix the way we act around others, act a little bit better in public, if somehow by doing that, God will begin to love us more and we will have more and more blessings. But the truth of God's word is that it is exactly the opposite. That while we were yet sinners, Christ set his love upon us. That while we were filthy, enemies of God, that God set a work of grace upon us to change us. And then we live in light of what God has done. Because you see, the other thing we cannot forget is that we will, defer, we will defeat the reality of what God has done by ignoring the change that is in us. If we think that we can somehow be changed by grace and live lives that are exactly like they were before, it's as if we're saying the work of God isn't real. It doesn't mean anything. So now Paul is going to begin to move on to some practical examples. And what is the method that Paul uses with us? We need to first know that the examples that Paul is giving are rooted in the high theology of the new creation that he has told us about. That we are a new creation in Christ And these examples are rooted in that truth. But what he is doing is, he is giving us examples that are designed to help us understand what it means to be a new creation. Because after all, if I just walked up to you and over and over again said, you know you're a new creation. Don't you know? You're a new creation. Eventually one of you would look at me and say, well what's new about it? What makes the difference? Help me to understand it. That's exactly what Paul is doing. And so Paul begins our text this morning in verse 25 with a word, therefore. And this therefore is a strong connectional word. You know the old saying, whenever you see a therefore, you look back so you could see what the therefore is there for. And this is even a stronger way of saying this in the Greek Paul wants our attention to be one eye on the passage he has just given to us and one eye on the examples before us. Right before our therefore, we see verse 24, that we are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what Paul is doing is he is saying to us, this is what righteousness and holiness looks like. Do you want to know what it looks like? Listen up. Because you see, we need these kind of concrete examples so that we can get our arms around this. There is a saying that I use often, because I think it's true. And that is that no one grows in Christ in fuzzy land. 
in vague generalities, in platitudes. We need to have the Lord come and do close work on us so that we can grow in Christ. Because the truth is, we are comfortable with broad principles so long as they do not touch us. If we think we are to be holy, to love, to be good, well, what does that mean? As long as we're allowed to keep our own conception of what that means, we will be untouched. And so Paul now begins to move to these practical, personal examples. Now, I want you to notice something about all of these examples. Each and every one of them are relational. They deal with dealing with other people and relating to other people. Now, I find that very interesting because... Oftentimes, our first blush at the word holiness is to think in some sort of mystical term. Like if we are to be holy, we need to sit in some quiet place in a tower in certain clothing and meditate. But that's not what biblical holiness is. Biblical holiness involves living amongst other people. It means living out, even as Jesus lived out, a holy life here on earth. Because the truth is, God has created us to live in relationship with other people. So He has recreated us in that same way. We are a part of the people of God. We are not alone. We come together with others to encourage one another, to stir one another up to love and to good deeds, and to join our voices together to praise our King. So these practical examples are all relational. I want you to notice another thing. That is, each one of these has a balance of the negative and the positive. Paul is not going to give us a list of things just not to do. You see, we have to positively cultivate righteousness. It is not enough to simply avoid sin. Sometimes we believe that is sufficient. As long as we don't use bad words in public. As long as we're not rude to others when they can see it. As long as we avoid being embarrassing to those around us, somehow we have succeeded. But Paul says that's not enough. It's not enough to stay away from the bad. We have to come to the good as well. Now, this has always been God's way. This is the way of the Ten Commandments. When the Ten Commandments say, do not bear false witness, they implicitly say, tell the truth. When the Tenth Commandment says, do not covet, it implicitly says, be content with what you have. We have to see both aspects of this. This is not some sort of cosmic life of staying out of trouble. Sometimes I think we think that the Christian life is the equivalent of when our young people live and hope they can make it through a long period of time without mom using our middle name in that tone of voice. You know, when we know we're in trouble. But that's not the Christian life. It's not just dodging bullets. It's not just trying to keep on a good show. No, God gives us both the positive and the negative. Finally, 
Paul gives us a reason for each one of these commands. Now, it is interesting that Paul could have just given us commands from God and we would have had to obey them. But in each one of these exhortations, he gives us a reason, a practical and theological reason as to why we are to live that way. Because you see, the truth is, God does not primarily want our behavior. Now, don't get me wrong. God is concerned about the way we live. But God's primary focus is not on our behavior. God's primary focus is that we would understand His character, who He is in His holiness. Because it is when we understand who God is that our character follows in that train. And so these examples give to us a picture of the wisdom and the purpose of God in our life. So how does Paul convey this to us? He conveys it to us through a series of four examples. First, in verse 25, he says, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul begins with the truth. He tells us that we are to live with the truth, not lies. Now, this is not surprising, because our faith that brings us to Christ is a rejection of the big lie. When Paul writes here falsehood, it's actually almost a defined term. The Greek is the lie. It has an article in front of it. You see, Paul is reminding us that it is the lie that leads us astray. It is the wrong view of the world that we perpetuate in our lives before we come to Christ that we must deal with. The lie is the lie about who is at the center of the universe. When we lie to ourselves and lie to others and say that we are the center of the universe, that is the great cosmic lie. This is what Paul writes in Romans 1. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. This is the lie that comes from the devil. It was the lie that he used in the garden and it has always been this way. This is the way of the world. The world is known for lying. It was characteristic of the Greeks in Paul's day. It was characteristic of the nations around Israel. They lied to take advantage of other people. And you see, Paul tells us, if we have rejected the big lie, how can we live a way of lying? If we have come to embrace Jesus who is the truth, how can we not live in the way of truth. You see, lying is a way that we take advantage of others. In lying, we try to build our own reality. But Paul reminds us that we are a new creation and that we have put off the world and we don't need to live the lying way of the world because we have defeated the big lie. How can we live in such a way as to Help others, not hurt them. 
The best way that we can do this is to reject lying and to embrace the truth. We must actively cultivate the truth, Paul says. Now, we cannot be lazy with the truth. Now, you may ask yourself, what do you mean be lazy with the truth? Being lazy with the truth is only being truthful when it doesn't cost you any effort or work. It's just like being lazy with work. Have you ever known someone like that? They're willing to take a task as long as they get the easiest one. As long as there's no cost. You see, that's what it's like to cultivate the truth. We must be active with the truth. Even when it causes us pain and suffering, we must know that God wants the truth from us and we should always be cultivating it in every aspect of our life. Because you see, the followers of Jesus Christ, He who is the truth... John 14, 6. They must be known as trustworthy and truthful. We deny our Lord when we lie. Now, why is it that we are to avoid lying and cultivate the truth? What is Paul's reason here? He says, for we are members one of another. And I find this interesting and very practical. Paul could have ended this note by saying God is truth himself, that every word from the living God is a true word. But he doesn't. He again draws us together. It's as if he's preaching to us, encouraging us to look around. He says, we are members one of another. We are connected to each other. And because of that, we must cultivate the truth. Because you see, fellowship in the body of Christ is built on trust. And trust is founded on the truth. And so if we are to be the body of Christ, if we are to be more and more like Jesus, if we are to come together as the people of God, then we must be a people of truth. Next, Paul moves from words to attitude. In verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now he starts here in a different way with the positive. Not telling us what not to do, but he starts with the positive, with a quotation from Psalm 4, 4. And there is an assumption here that there is an anger that is a proper Christian anger. Now that may strike us as odd, but I think Paul is correct here. John Stott puts it wonderfully. He said, There is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. Not less. More. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. So you see, We can be angry with sin. We can be angry with injustice in the world. We can be angry with our own inability to be like Christ. But, Paul knows who we are. This is where he begins to meddle again. He knows that if he leaves it at be angry, we're going to take that as an excuse to be angry all the time. That we're going to say to our wives, our husbands, our kids, I can yell at you all day long. Paul said it and the pastor told me I can do it. So immediately, it's as if the breath isn't even finished. Paul gives a boundary 
to this anger. So we don't use it as an excuse. He says, be angry and do not sin. Because the truth is, of all of the major sins, anger is often the most enjoyable. There is something about nourishing the thought that we're right, that someone else is wrong, and we're going to prove it, and we're going to show them, and we're going to stand on our rights, and nobody's going to push us around. There's almost a, a, a shallow filling of our hearts in this. We enjoy it. We think we are entitled to it. But the problem is, anger, because of this, often leads to other sins. It leads to slander. It leads to hate. And it's because of this that James tells us that we must be slow to anger. Paul tells you to be angry. But don't pop off at everything. Think about what is going on. Think about whether your anger is righteous, whether your cause is right, whether you can handle the situation in another way. Because we need to be careful about our anger because we are all too tempted to nourish and nurse our anger. That's why Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now for many of us, we take this a little bit too mechanically. We say to ourselves, you know what, honey? It's only 2 p.m. I could be angry at you for a good another six hours. Paul said, I've got till the sun goes down. Or we think it's some sort of magical elixir. I've seen it in premarital counseling where the counselor will tell the engaged couple, now you know, you can never put your head on the pillow when you're angry. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. As if somehow... Great things will happen before we put our head on the pillow, or horrible things will happen when our head hits the pillow. But this can't be what Paul is talking about. Otherwise, if you want to be angry, I have advice to you. Go move to Greenland. Or go move to Alaska. You can get days where the sun doesn't come down for more than 24 hours. You can enjoy all the anger you want, and the poor folks on the equator never get these long days. But that's not what Paul means. What Paul means is we are not to nourish in our hearts, to dwell on this anger, to let it get hold of us, to become the driving force within us. Anger can get out of control. Not just in a violent outburst, but anger can get out of control in a festering wound within us. And we must seek to resolve the situation and not give in to our anger. And it's interesting that the second word here for anger in verse 26, the last word, actually means resentment or the source of anger, not anger itself. What Paul says is, is that we cannot nourish resentment or the source of our anger. We need to deal not only with our emotions... We need to deal with our heart. This is critical. Why? Well, Paul gives us a reason again. And give no opportunity to the devil. You see, we need to deal with anger because anger provides an opportunity for destruction. It gives Satan an opportunity to come after us. 
Because Satan knows the fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And he is constantly trying to push us over the line. He's constantly trying to get us to forget the second half of that couplet, be angry and do not sin. He wants us to be angry and to sin. Because Satan wants nothing more than strife in the community of God. Think about it. If the church of God is God's army going forth to declare the gospel of grace and to bring Jesus to the world, what would Satan like more than infighting that distracts us from the mission? And so Satan loves misunderstandings. He loves grievances that we nurse for year upon year. Now notice here, Satan is not credited with causing the anger. But he does hang around to find every opportunity. The word here for opportunity means a place. An opportunity. A chance. He's scanning out everywhere he can to push you over the edge into sinful anger. So what must we do then? We must seek God's grace And by God's grace, seek to keep short accounts. We have to be willing to come together and to let go of our anger. We have to be willing to forgive one another. We have to be willing to be reconciled. Because, beloved, I tell you, if you will not be reconciled to someone, if you will not forgive someone, you are doing Satan's work in the church. He wants that division, strife, Bitter anger. We must keep short accounts. One opportunity to keep short accounts is every time we come to the Lord's Supper. We're reminded that if we have something against someone, that we should seek them out and be reconciled before we partake of the Supper. So in God's providence, you have a wonderful opportunity today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this evening. And so this afternoon you have an opportunity to call your relative that you need to be reconciled with. To speak to those in your family that you need to be set right with. To forgive those who have wronged you. Not to nourish anger. The third example that Paul gives is here in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Now, this is a well-settled principle of conduct. It is actually the subject of the Eighth Commandment. But Paul's language that he uses here reminds us of the change that takes place when we become a new creation in Christ. The thief is actually a verb. It's a participle. We might translate it this way. Let the one who steals, the one who is known as the stealer, as the thief, that defines who he is, let that one steal no longer. Because he's no longer who he is. He's no longer a thief. He has left that life behind because of the work of Jesus. Now, there are many ways to steal, aren't there? The most obvious, of course, is to take something from someone. 
And so we can at times think that this does not touch us because we've never committed armed robbery. We've never gone into someone's house and taken their wallet. But in reality, it applies to us as well, doesn't it? It's a temptation to us to view others around us as the ones who are guilty. This is exactly what the Jews of Paul's day did. They were sure they were not thieves because they could point to people who they knew stole publicly, tax collectors, and they would say, that's a thief, not me. That's a thief. But the reality is we can steal even when we do not actively and publicly take things. We steal from our employer when we don't provide them with the work that they are compensating us for. We steal from our educational institutions and teachers when we cheat on tests and homework. You see, there are many ways that we can take things that aren't ours. But again, it is not enough to simply avoid sin. Paul says we are to work hard. And the language here is very vivid of hard work. When Paul says work, he uses the same word that Peter uses in Luke chapter 5. You remember when Peter was in the boat with his co-workers and they threw the nets to try to catch fish all night long, Peter says? Throw the net, pull it in. Throw the net, pull it in. Hour upon hour. And when Jesus comes to him and says, cast your net again, you can almost hear the tiredness in Peter's voice. Really? We worked all night. I didn't catch anything. He's bone tired. That's how we're called to work. Not halfway. Not just enough to get by. We are to be the hardest of workers. Why? Now this is interesting, because it's not what we would expect. We would think maybe that Paul would say that work for its own sake is valuable. And that is true. Work is a creation ordinance that comes before the fall. But that's not what he says. Or we might think you should work hard so you could be well thought of for other people and set a good example. And that's true. But that's not what Paul says. We might say we should work hard so we could be safe, so we could build up a nest egg, so that if something happens, we can take care of ourselves. But that's not what Paul says. What does Paul say? He says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, we are to work hard so that we have something to share with others. Paul doesn't start with us. He starts with others. We are to work hard so that we have money to give away. When was the last time you thought about it that way? You see, this is the heart of stewardship. We budget so that we know we have less money going out than coming in. We work hard to provide for that, for those money, that funds coming in. We are thrifty with what we spend. And all of this is done so that we can give it away. That's the primary purpose, Paul says. So that when you take care of yourself, you have some left over to give to others. What is your attitude toward work and money? Is work a necessary evil? 
Is it something you feel like you have to do? That if you could just win the lottery, everything would be so much better? Do you wish work had never been invented? Well, again, I hate to tell you, it's not a result of sin. Adam had work in the garden. You see, work shows us that we are no longer leeching off the community. We are supporting and contributing the community. We work so that we can provide for others. Now, what does that mean in our context? I'll give you just a few examples. We work to be able to give to others so that missionaries can go and bring the gospel to others who would never hear of Jesus otherwise. And they could not do that on their own. Because the people that they want to bring the gospel to aren't going to pay them for bringing the gospel. We work so that children will grow in the faith and learn scripture and have opportunities to come together and understand the Bible and their place in the world with Jesus. We work so that we can buy Bibles to give out to others who come in and wonder what God is all about and what is the Scripture. You see, we work hard to give so that we can be involved in ministry for others. This is Paul's primary motive for what you all spend the vast majority of your day on. It's to give to others. The fourth and final example that Paul gives is he tells us that we are to have wholesome, not rotten speech. Paul goes back to speech here in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Our speech is to be more than simply truthful. We are called to be a blessing to others in our speech. And this makes sense because speech is a gift from God. Speech is one of the ways in which we are made in God's image. We speak because God speaks. Trees don't speak. Dogs and cats don't speak. I'm telling you, even dolphins and porpoises do not speak. Human beings speak because it is a gift from God. And so we should have no corrupt talk come out of our mouths. Now, this is more than just avoiding four-letter words. What Paul means here when he says corrupt, it has the view of being rotten, decaying. Have you ever seen a piece of fruit that maybe got left somewhere where it wasn't supposed to? And it's rotten, and it stinks, and you don't even want to be in the same room as it? That's what corrupt speech is like. Because that speech is not just bad in and of itself. It's bad for others. It is corrupt, and it is corrupting. And if we think about it then, corrupt speech is everywhere in our world. What you can hear at 5 p.m. on a network television show is incredible today. It's not what it was like 20 or 30 years ago. But the reality is, language itself is changing, not just in terms of foul words, but in terms of the way we speak. Everywhere around us, we have people deciding that the world will be how they want it to be, and not how God has created it to be. And they insist 
that you call them a certain gender or use a certain pronoun or call them a certain name or talk about certain truths that they believe. And you see, it corrupts our society, our families, and our natures. Instead, as followers of Jesus, we are to build others up. We are to actually seek opportunities. Paul says, as fits the occasion, seek opportunities to encourage others. Now, I'm not telling you that you should all spend this afternoon and this week saying, have a nice day, gee, your hair looks nice, to try to build each other up. There's much more than that to this. Sometimes the words that build us up are encouragement. Sometimes the words that build us up are practical advice on how to face certain challenges and tasks. Sometimes we just need to hear, press on, you can do it. You see, that is how we are to speak, to build others up. Why? Once again, Paul gives us a reason that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, God uses our words. Our words are a means that God uses to bring grace to others. We need grace each and every day. And God uses others around us in the community to build us up through the use of sound, wholesome words. Finally, we see here in this text the end of living in Christ. The purpose of these examples, the purpose of this exhortation Paul gives to us is twofold. First, we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And then second, we are to be a blessing to the community. Paul has been giving us practical examples of what it means to love our neighbors. So this way we have no excuse to say we don't understand how we should be living. But there is more than a practical matter to this. There's also a theological matter to this. Because Paul wants us to understand that disruption amongst our relationships disrupts our relationship with God. Now we don't think about that, do we? We think we go at it hammer and tongs with each other, give each other the cold shoulder, and be perfectly fine with God. But Paul says that's not how it works. Because when you engage in this old man behavior, you grieve the Holy Spirit. And this is because the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it, not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. And he is saddened by seeing the truth that he speaks trampled on. He is saddened by seeing people at each other with anger. He is saddened by seeing rotten, filthy words come out of our mouths to divide each other up. The Holy Spirit is the one who speaks through God's word. He's the one that gives the gifts to Christ's church. And if we live as if the work of the Spirit means nothing, he's grieved. When we act as if we haven't been changed, and that the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit means nothing, then he is grieved. 
Because you see, the work of the Spirit is to take us from the beginnings of faith to glory. That's what Paul means when he says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. From that first moment of faith, God's seal was put upon you. Until the day of redemption, when in glory we are made perfect in Christ, no longer to sin. That is the work of the Spirit, is to take us along this journey. And on that journey, we are to grow in Christ-likeness. The Spirit hates sin. The Spirit hates discord. The Spirit hates lies. And when we live after that fashion, we grieve Him. Finally, we see that we are a blessing to the community if we follow the instructions of Paul. We see this in verses 31 and 32. He gives a series of instructions that are focused on living well in the community. It's not just our actions that we need to be concerned about. It's also the attitude of our hearts. And so he gives us very quickly six vices and three virtues. Within the vices, there are three that deal with sinful motives. We are to put off the sinful motive of bitterness, of having a sour spirit and a sour speech about us. We are to put off the sinful motive of wrath, indignant outbursts in which we attack others. We are to put off anger, a sullen hostility that drags us down. And we are also to put off the three fruits of our attitudes in these relationships. Clamor, quarreling, not listening to others, shouting over them. Slander, deliberately attempting to hurt others through falsehood. And then, of course, malice, which covers all wickedness. We are to put all of these off, and instead, we are to be Christ to others. We are to be kind to benefit others. We are to be tender-hearted and compassionate, and we are to be forgiving. Why? Well, this takes us back to the beginning, doesn't it? We are to be forgiving because Christ has forgiven us. Because He has changed us. Because we are forgiven, we are changed. And we become people who forgive. This is what Paul is trying to explain to us throughout this entire chapter. That Jesus has done an incredible work in the life of everyone who trusts Him by faith and believes in Him. They will never be the same again. Do you long to be like Jesus? Paul's given you many practical ways that you can live today to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you this morning that you have given us these commands, that you have challenged us, that you have not left us to our own devices and concerns, but rather instead that you have pointed us to the Savior and you have shown us how we are to live. Lord, we ask that you would give us opportunities to live in Christ this week. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.